Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again and thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast. My name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and with me as always is astronomer at large, Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. <laughs> G'day, Andrew. How are you doing? <laughs> Cobba. Oh, oh, my goodness. I just can't do it. I can't. No, no. I've only been here for 30, what is it, 34 years or something. No, it's more than that. It's 37 years. My God. One thing Australians can always pick is a fake attempt at an Australian accent. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You've got to be darn good at acting to, to, to get yeah. away with it, I think. Yeah, well, I never got it. So mm. uh, it's, it's quite natural to, to the, those that are native to this land. So um, we... Uh, yeah, we, we can spot a fake a mile away. Um, today, we've got a lot to talk about, Fred. Uh, Saturn's rings are very young, much younger than the planet itself, it seems. Uh, Earth's magnetic field, this is a fascinating story, is shifting, and it's shifting fast, and they're going to have to do some adjustments so that we don't sort of um, get lost with our GPS services. And uh, a, a question from Trevor Mills about alien signals and the disbursement of radio signals in the universe and uh, what effect that might have. So those stories coming up. But I, I did want to actually reflect on something I saw this morning, Fred. It was 6.30am and I was on my way to the radio station and I just happened to look up at exactly the same moment as I saw a streak of, red, uh, of white light cross the sky very quickly very, it faded in and faded out, and, and it was seriously the whitest of white light I think I've ever seen. And my immediate thought was to a discussion we had recently, and um, since I saw it, I've seen a, a fair bit of social media commentary about iridium flares, and it may well have been one. Um, I think that's almost certainly what you saw, Andrew. Uh, iridium is a family of uh, spacecraft they're in polar orbits that means they go north south uh in when when you see them um rather than west to east which is what most normal spacecraft uh go when you see them passing through the sky satellites uh so iridium they call it a constellation i think there were originally 66 satellites and they were for communications but the reason why they had this curious phenomenon was uh, that they uh, each spacecraft has uh, uh, I think it's got three highly reflective antennas on it, which are about the size and shape of a bathroom mirror, uh, kind of pointing downwards, or a wardrobe mirror, a big one, um, pointing uh, kind of angled downwards. And uh, it was possible to calculate where the spot of sunlight would fall on the Earth's surface that these things were reflecting. Yeah. Uh, and that was done. There are various websites where you can look it up. My favorite is always the Heavens Above website because mm. it tells you exactly when one of these things is coming. And so as this spot of light passes over you, uh, you see this bright thing in the sky. And sometimes uh, 
they're, they're, they don't look as though they're moving very quickly. You get the reflection, uh, but it looks as though it's come from something quite stationary in the sky. And I, I mean, you and I have had uh, emails and, and um, messages saying, have I seen a supernova, an exploding star? And the answer is no, you've seen an iridium flare. Um, very, very bright. They can be much, much brighter than the planet Venus. And that's very striking, as you know. Yes, well, it was, certainly was very bright. And uh, we, we had some uh, pretty heavy storms overnight here. And, yes. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to have a gap in the clouds, I'm guessing, because uh, it was, certainly was at altitude. There was certain, it wasn't a low-level object. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, and just happened to look up at that very moment. So very it's a great it's a great trick. Astronomers love to do this, especially amateur astronomers. They they've got an they've got a viewing night, you know, with dozens of people around a few telescopes and somebody's looked up when there's an iridium flare and um, you know, then some some clever dick will say, if you just look up there in about 10 seconds, you should see, and sure enough, they see it because the ephemeris, the, the calculation of where these things are going to be is so good. Mm. Um, and um, it's a great trick. It makes it look as though you're really in control of the heavens. Sadly, we won't be able to do that for much longer because the current Iridium spacecraft are gradually being replaced by another a constellation of a different version of iridium. So this great trick that amateur astronomers can do is going to be a thing of the past. Yes. Well, I didn't have to predict it. I just happened to look in the right place at the right time. <laughs> so I feel very lucky. Now, uh, let's move on to our first official topic, and that is the rings of Saturn. Of course, a couple of years ago, they um, studied Saturn uh, at length with the Cassini space probe before they crashed it into the planet, as we tend to do. Uh, but its um, data is still being crunched, and now it looks like they have discovered uh, or confirmed uh, theories that the rings of Saturn are much, much, much younger than the planet itself. That's right. And also not likely to last as long as the planet itself either. They're a temporary phenomenon. Mm. So this does come, as you uh, have alluded to, this comes from Cassini data. Cassini, the spacecraft that was in orbit around Saturn for 13 years, 2004 to 2017. RIP, it was one of the finest of all uh, NASA, ESA, and the Italian Space Agency was the other one, uh, space missions. It was just brilliant. Uh, and we learned so much about Saturn and its rings and its satellites and about planetary formation generally. So uh, during the final 22 orbits of the Cassini mission, and you and I spoke about this at great length, um, it passed between the, the, the rings and the planet itself. So it actually threaded itself through that gap uh, between the rings and the planet. And that's where these new studies have, uh, or where the data for these new studies uh, have come from. Um, so just before Christmas, there was a paper which I don't think you and I got to talk about, some results that came out that suggested that the rings are actually dis disappearing relatively rapidly. Mm. Uh, they're made of ice, uh, ice crystals, and actually up to the size of boulders. Uh, and as Cassini went through between the rings and the planet, it, it detected a flow of ice towards the planet. In other words, it's kind of raining ice from the inner edges of the rings. That was confirmed as well earlier in the year by observations made from one of the Keck telescopes uh, in Hawaii, uh, a ground-based telescope which was looking at the infrared signal of ice 
flowing down to the planet. This was actually stuff that was flowing along the magnetic field lines of Saturn. So it wasn't going straight onto Saturn's equator like the stuff that Cassini had measured directly. It was heading to middle latitudes, but still a flow of ice particles. And the overall calculation there was that about 10 tons of ice per second are falling from the rings towards the planet, uh, which suggests that they have a limited lifespan. And in fact, people are talking about less than 100 million years for the longevity of the rings. However, but wait, there's more, uh -huh. because <laughs> there's a new paper um, hot on the heels of that, those last ones. This has come out just uh, since the, um, you know, since the new year. And this is looking at the gravitational measurements that Cassini made during those last uh, orbits, which has allowed the rings of Saturn to be weighed. Uh, you can do, um, you know, by gravitational, sorry, by analysis of the orbit of the spacecraft, you can work out what the gravitational pull is. And it turns out that the rings themselves weigh 15,400 trillion Good tons. Grief. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's, uh, there's something like, yeah, there's uh, 14 zeros 14, in there. 14-digit number. Well, it's more than 14 digits. There's 14 zeros and then 154 in front of that, which oh, I think yeah, is... Oh, yeah, yeah, it is too. A trillion. So um, I can't count that high, then. <laughs> That's the problem. It's um, it's comparable with the mass of some, some of the moons of Saturn. In fact, the, uh, the, the piece that the BBC has, quoted, uh, has written on this quotes, that as being about 40% um, of the mass of Mimas, which is one of Saturn's well-known moons, because it looks like the Death Star. Yeah, from it does. It's got Gold. that, uh, that, that huge right. dint in it that um, looks just like the Death Star's weapon. But if you if you bring all this stuff together, though, knowing the mass now and knowing the the rate of loss of ice to Saturn, you you can actually work out how long the rings have been there, and it's no more than a hundred million years. Now that sounds like a very big number. A mm. uh, hundred million years is uh, a long time. It's a little bit longer than you and you or I are going to last. But compared with the age of Saturn, as you said at the beginning, it's nothing. Saturn's 4.6 billion years old. So the rings have been there for less than 100 million years. Some, some uh, of the pundits suggest not much more than 10 million years. Um, and uh, as we've seen already, they won't last for any more than 100 million years. So we are seeing them at a time when they are quite spectacular, although a hundred million years ago, you know, a few tens of millions of years ago, whenever they formed, they would have even been more spectacular uh, because they've been leaking this material onto the planet. So where did they come from? The thinking is perhaps a collision between two icy moons of Saturn. Uh, most of Saturn's moons are very rich in ice, and that's what the rings are made of. So maybe two of them collided and resulted in this pile of debris, which makes the planet the pearl of the solar system. Oh, That's nice. Mm. Okay, so uh, just we better take a long last look at them before they disappear completely. Although I suspect yep. that won't won't be a fast disappearance. Not not compared with human timescales. No. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. All right. Uh, we'll um, certainly be learning. I, I, I guess there's still more to learn from Cassini as well. They're still going through the data. I think exactly so. I think there will be more stuff that you and I will be reporting on as the year progresses. Mm, very good. All right. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here and Fred Watson there. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, 
ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash Space. That's T R Y E X P R E S S V P N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more, and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now, back to the show. Three, two, one. Space nuts. Now, Fred, we're going to look at uh, something fascinating, but also a little bit disturbing, especially if you are someone who uses GPS to navigate the planet. And let's face it, a lot of us do these days because our phones are all GPS capable. Uh, the problem is the Earth's magnetic field is uh, changing and the, um, the North Magnetic Pole is shifting rather dramatically. In fact, it's moved a heck of a long way in the last hundred years, but in more recent years, it's actually moved much faster from what I've uh, learned. Uh, this is a, a really interesting little um, scenario, isn't it? Uh, it, it? Indeed it is. Um, it is a bit curious. So there's the, the learned magazine Nature, it's one of the principal uh, scientific journals of the world, uh, it had a headline in its January 9th edition, which said, Earth's magnetic field is acting up and geologists don't know why. Uh, and that's um, interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Uh, and I suppose in some respects it's, um, it's cause for concern. But I suppose uh, you know, when you think about the, um, the magnetic field and the, and the north magnetic pole, which naturally moves because... Um, you know, there's disturbance within the planet that causes these things. Uh, and and we've, with modern technology, we've become so reliant on, on systems that are based on these natural phenomena. Exactly, that's right. So, so the, the, the bottom line is, as you said, in the last 100 years, uh, the North Magnetic Pole has moved 
from being in uh, far northern Canada to being actually quite close to the geographic North Pole. It's moved by 20 degrees of latitude, which is certainly shifting. It is. It's a huge amount. That's in 100 years. Um, and in fact, in the last 15 years, um, in fact, it's moved almost as much in the last 15 years as it moved in the previous 100. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's speeding up. It's heading from Canada across the pole to Siberia. Um, the It's a Russian under- plot. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. <laughs> they want to control. They want to control the GPS systems. That's what well, it is. That be it. That's right. Just just to try and look at the the reason for this. Um, it, it is because uh, the the liquid core of the planet is what determines the, the 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 magnetic field, and that is liquid. So it's kind of moving around. Um, uh, maybe I can uh, just quote the the headline. Uh, paragraph of that Nature article, uh, which kind of tells it like it is. Something strange is going on at the top of the world. Earth's north magnetic pole has been skittering away from Canada and towards Siberia, driven by liquid iron sloshing within the planet's core. Um, And that's the, you know, that's the sum total. There is um, a, a little bit more to it than that when you Um, read what some of the geomagnetic specialists are talking about. Um, It seems to be uh, that the North Magnetic Pole, its position is governed by two large-scale patches of magnetic field. Uh, One is beneath Canada and one is beneath Siberia. And these two are kind of vying for supremacy. Mm. Uh, and so <clears throat> as one gets slightly stronger than the other, the magnetic field moves a long way. So it is all about sloshing around. Uh, but as uh, as the uh, lead paragraph of this Nature article continues, the magnetic pole is moving so quickly that it has forced the world's geomagnetism experts into a rare move. And that rare move is about uh, an unexpected update of what is called the world magnetic model. The world magnetic model is um, essentially... Uh, uh, well, it's a, it's a map of the magnetic field all over the world, which is apparently updated uh, every five years. The last, the most recent version came out in 2015. Uh, the next one should come out in 2020. And why is that important? Because exactly as you've said, this is built into our mobile phones. It underlies the, the, the GPS system. That and and the cockpits of passenger airliners and, and the ships well, at sea and, yes, and similar similar things probably in spacecraft as well yes. so it came out in 2015 that the most recent version but um, because the field is moving so rapidly there is a move afoot to do an interim change rather than uh, bring out a new version of the model in 2020, which is the current plan. I mean, we're nearly at 2020 now, but the the experts have brought that forward uh, in order to, um, you know, in order to to give us um, a a better fix on the magnetic field for all these navigation uh, questions. There is, however, a slight hitch in all this, if I can put it that way. I'm probably mixing my metaphors, though. And that is uh, that nothing is going to happen uh, because this new model, which is based on a network of 
something like 160 magnetic observatories as well as spacecraft in low orbit. There are actually magnetic sensing spacecraft. Um, that new model was supposed to be released on the 15th of January, but it's been delayed because of the US government partial shutdown. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yes. So do anything about it until um, until you know they've got the, the the effort in place to do that. So um, it is it, it will happen clearly, uh, but it's an interesting you know an interesting story in that it connects the real physics of planets, uh, namely our own, and the fact that there's all this stuff going on under under our feet, mm. with our everyday lives as they are now dictated by high tech. Uh, implements like these little rectangular boxes we all carry around in our pockets. Well, if that um, government shutdown continues, we might have to raid a few museums and brush off a few sextants. Yeah, well, sextants and, and magnetic compasses. I've yeah. got a few compasses. I'll be all right. I'm, yeah. I'm okay. yeah. oh, no, no, there's no flies on me. Just as an interesting aside, uh, the focus is on the north magnetic pole. What, is anything happening down south? Uh, I checked on this um, and uh, my... As I understand it, the south magnetic pole is much more stable. Ah. Um, let me just try and see if I can confirm this. I remember reading. Uh, so logic about, says to me, if one's shifting one way, the other must balance it. But that's not how it works. Not necessarily, no. There are, there are two different things here at play, uh, Andrew, which I was not aware of, I have to say, before this work came out. And what we're seeing is the movement of what's called the magnetic north pole. And that's defined by the place where a compass needle would stand vertically if you let it move around in the magnetic field. But uh, there is something else called the geomagnetic north pole. And that's, um, uh, that is uh, what you get if you model the whole Earth as a bar magnet and say, all right, take the intricacies, the intricacies of the Earth's magnetic field, take a, an average thing that makes it look just as though you've got a bar magnet inside the Earth. Where is the North Pole of that? And it's actually in a slightly different position. So and you're telling me there are three North Poles? There are three North Poles, that's right. <laughs> the geographic one, the magnetic pole, and the geomagnetic pole. Good grief. <laughs> Yeah, and there are there are likewise three South Poles. Uh, I think the South Pole uh, is behaving more, uh, actually, rather more sensibly, and it's presumably well, you know because, it's in the Southern Hemisphere for it. Of course, absolutely correct. Uh, it's more about the fact that we don't have a big magnetic anomaly stuck under Canada and another one under Siberia that are fighting it out at the moment. Mm. Yeah, well, West versus East. There you go again. That's right. It's um, there's uh, all kinds of. Um, uh, you know, all kinds of analogues in that. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, well, it'll be interesting to see. And 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 is this perhaps got anything to do with the, uh, the the predicted reversing of the polarity of the Earth's magnetic field? I, I guess in the long term it it has because we know that's happened many times in the Earth's history that the uh, magnetic field has flipped, and it's the, uh, the Earth's magnetic field is certainly getting weaker at the moment, uh, and you can check that you know um, magnetists look at things like the, the the hematite in roman clay pots and how that was orientated and they can work out the magnetic field from that and know that it's actually declined and in fact in the last uh, 200 years we've had sensitive rec uh, records from sensitive magnetometers so we know it's declining um i do remember writing a long time ago when I was writing about this for an encyclopedia uh, that it ex is it ex the way it's going at the moment in about 1500 years 
it will get to zero. Uh, but whether that will happen and whether it will cause a re magnetic reversal, these are things that nobody can predict because apparently the magnetic field of the Earth is one of these things that does exactly what it likes. It doesn't really behave according to any models at all. Yeah, very all we can cyclonic, do is very... Much yeah, like that's a hurricane. Right. You can't it's like predict weather. them. Exactly. Mm. It's like mm. weather. Okay, we watch with interest. I, uh, one um, other point. I, I read uh, an article a few years ago now, but uh, talking about the, the, the real North Pole, they have to move that too because the ice shifts. So every year they have to go out and go, okay, it's not supposed to be there now, and they have to shift because there is actually a pole where, they've, where the North Pole is, <laughs> and, they, and they move it according to the shifting of the ice. That's what I'm told anyway. Oh, they would on the ice, that's right. But yeah. the, the North Pole does move around, but only uh, over a matter of metres rather mm. than... Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, but every year, I think it's yeah. on New Year's Day, in fact, they go and put it where it should be because it's Long moved. You... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all very fascinating. Well, this one's been really interesting, so we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on that one. But if you're flying overseas in the near future... Just bear that in mind. Good luck. <laughs> this is Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, we get to an audience question and we say hello to Trevor Mills, who uh, has a question for us uh, about, uh, well, radio signals in space, basically. He says, hi, guys, just wondering how practical it is for us to detect radio signals from aliens or for aliens to hear our radio signals. Our civilization has been leaking radio signals into space for about 100 years, probably more. But uh, could they have really traveled 100 light years and still be detectable given the inverse square law would make the signals so weak? I expect they would be almost impossible to detect at that distance. So my question is, how far could our normal radio and television transmissions realistically travel before they would make the uh, become too weak, making it difficult for another civil civilization to detect them. That is a great question, and Jodie Foster knows the answer, <laughs> because um, if you've seen the movie Contact, then um, that was all based on a radio signal that was received uh, on Earth from the um, star system of Vega, which is a long, 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 long way away. But yeah. not that far, I don't think. <laughs> Actually, it's, this question... It's 25 light years or something. Yes, it's something like that. That's mm. right. I need to, need to check that too. Um, but this question, uh, I do remember, was answered by a friend of mine, in fact, who is a professor at the University of Arizona in, uh, in America. Um, at, in, in, in fact, in, it's based in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, and he did the calculation, and I can't remember the answer he got, but it was something in the region of 50 light years that, ah. um, you know, a signal that we would make could be detected. So so the Earth is radio bright. In the radio spectrum, the Earth is relatively bright because of all the, um, you know, all the, uh, the, the transmissions throughout the world. So as exactly as Tre Trevor says, it's been leaking radio signals into space. The ones 100 years ago were probably a lot weaker than the ones in 2019, but we still do have a very high level of interference into space. And um, so I think Chris Impey, the, the friend of mine, Professor Chris Impey, I think his calculation was in the region of 50 light years before it becomes impossible for anybody because the signal is so weak that you've got quantum noise effects that are playing havoc with what you're trying to measure. Okay. Um, however, uh, if you 
think about um, very, very sensitive radio instruments and add in not just the broadcast signals, but things like radar and things of that sort, throw all that stuff in, then you that 50 light years is probably about right because um, I've certainly read that the square kilometer array, uh, which is the will be the most sensitive telescope in the world when it's built in the 2020s, uh, and it's a radio telescope. It's clustered around two centres, one in southern Africa, one here, one in Western Australia. Um, and both those countries have got sort of precursor uh, versions of their instruments, which are working very well. Uh, but when it's finished, um, part of the blurb says that it will be capable of detecting an airport radar, not just a planet full of airport radars, but an airport radio, radar. And I think the figure, I'd have to check this, but I think, again, it's about 50 light years. It it's really, really narrows the potential, though, doesn't it? Very, very significantly. Yes, that's right. It does. But it does mean that we are not, you know, um, that, that Trevor's on the money, that if there are uh, intelligent aliens within 50 light years of, of the solar system, they could know that we're here they could and now that we're getting better and better at uh, discovering exoplanets and exosolar systems uh, and more specifically earth-like planets then we may well be able to target potential planets within that uh, yeah. That yeah, that's right. time frame or distance frame um, the other question that comes into play i suppose is if we wanted to if we if we were to detect a potential planet um, would we be able to focus a signal say via laser or something so that they got a concentrated burst like the wow signal for example so are you talking now about us sending out yes. signals to so um that's something that um we we've only done on a number of occasions there, there have been when when the arecibo dish was was opened uh, this is a 300-metre diameter radio telescope in uh, Puerto Rico. When that was dedicated, there was a burst of radio signals sent off uh, towards a, a star cluster uh, with, a, with a pattern basically built into it. But that's virtually the only directed signal to an, uh, aimed at uh, an alien species that we've ever sent. And the reason for that is it's ethically rather an interesting question whether you want to beam stuff up. Mm. And in fact, one of the uh, one of the um, facets or uh, arms or wings of the breakthrough project is looking at the ethics of exactly this. So that that breakthrough project has three three parts to it. One is breakthrough listen, which is Currently in action, we're listening for signals from two of the world's great radio telescopes uh, as to whether uh, any alien messages might be found among them. Breakthrough Listen, then Breakthrough Starshot, which is the idea of propelling spacecraft uh, to Alpha Centauri on a laser beam. Uh, and the other one, uh, whose name I can't remember, is Breakthrough Something Else. Uh, that is uh, actually looking at the ethics of sending a signal out there and what it should be if we should do that. And there are certainly people, I mean, the late Stephen Hawking was dead against that kind of thing because really? he said, you know, we're opening ourselves up to uh, to um, right. all kind of possibilities. Mm. But the question, yeah, you can look at it from several perspectives. But if we are sitting here listening, then we are wanting aliens to send a signal to us. So why not do the same back? 
That's the other yeah. argument. Yeah, yeah. And so, then the the you know the, yeah, it's all about the the history of uh, of species interacting with one another has not been good usually for one one half of the species. Violence tends to ensue. Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah. and, and, and that is certainly. I was, I was going to say a risk, but no, a factor that you should probably consider. Take into yes. account, that's mm. right. So that was certainly at the back of Stephen Hawking's mind. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah. Um, I suppose one other point I, I guess that's popped into my mind as a result of this, um, we, we talked, well, have talked several times and we'll be talking again soon uh, about the uh, the remnants of the Big Bang and how it, even though it only lasted 380,000 years, we can still see um, the effects and, and detect the, uh, the, the um, photon um, signals. So why wouldn't um, radio signals we create still be detectable under those circumstances? Um, well, they'd have to be as bright as the Big Bang. Ah, right, <laughs> um, so the Big Bang was the... We've know, made a few Big Bangs in history. Yeah, well, that's right, we have. Some, some of which are more memorable than others. Mm. Some are positively embarrassing, actually. But uh, the, um, the, the, the Big Bang of Yes, it was such a cataclysmic event that its uh, its effects still reverberate through the universe in the form of the cosmic microwave background radiation. Indeed. All right. Trevor, thank you so much for what was uh, a fascinating question. It's, uh, and, and now you know that we've got a 50, well, it's the 50-mile limit, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Once we get outside, 50 light years, um, yeah, all bets are off. Um, thank you, Fred, as always. We uh, appreciate um, what you do and how you do it, and uh, it's great fun, and we'll talk to you again next week. That sounds great, Andrew. I'll look forward to it. Take care and have a good week. That's Fred Watson, astronomer at large. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you, as always, for listening to Space Nuts. Don't forget to tell your friends and keep in touch, and we'll talk to you next time. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.